So here we go. We, we continue in the book of Colossians. And now we turn a corner into what is one of the high points of the New Testament. This hymn, it's a hymn similar to the Philippians 2, 5 through 11 hymn. This hymn of Jesus. This is high Christology type stuff. And Paul, at the beginning of this letter, brings it to this church in Colossae. As you remember on Sunday, it talked about this church being in a bit of a small town, but a small town with a lot of Jewish population. But the Jewish population doesn't seem to dominate what is going on in the background of this letter. And it may be that the Jewish population assimilated a bit too much with some of the philosophical thought that was going on. Some of that thought may have been proto or early Gnostic thought. I'll talk about it more as we go through the letter. But it, it could have been just philosophies that were bumping around. As a matter of fact, it's the only book in the New Testament that uses the word philosophy. Is this book to the Colossians. So all of this kind of mishmash of competing ideas of the age have found a, a home in, in Colossae. And maybe has even begun to infect the church. And one of the big things that you want to protect yourself against when you got a bunch of competing philosophies that think that, well, yeah, the gospel is pretty cool, but if we could also recognize the, the beauty of this idea too, well, the, the danger of that is if in any way that begins to in any way alter Jesus, then you got to protect the gospel because the gospel is Jesus. Our good news is Jesus. And what amazing good news that it, that it really is for us. Aha. Uh, and so here we go. Let's read starting in verse 15. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And so my, my sermon title tonight, as you can uh, guess from the midst of this section, he's kind of a big deal. I like when people wear that T-shirt, you know, and they say, I'm kind of a big deal. And you want to ask them, but I never have asked them. But here I get to really have the question answered of why is Jesus kind of a big deal? He's kind of a big deal because of what Paul has just laid out here for us. And what's interesting is that as Paul begins to not only get into some theology of explaining the intricacies and the wonders of Jesus, 
It's as though he kind of just flips it into just worship in the midst of it. Because in the original language, it's set in very beautiful language and it has a poetic nature to it as well. And so all of this, as kind of deep stuff as it is, it also is given in a real flourish to the people who could hear it in the original language. And I, uh, I liken this passage to a time when I was in London, uh, one of the earlier times that I was in London, when I was first trying to get my bearings in the underground system there, the tubes, as, as they uh, are called there. And, and they have a, a tube map, and I remember going to the counter as I you know, get ready to go, go through the gate there, and I pick up a tube map, and all of the covers of the tube maps were really beautiful pictures. And so as you, as you look at the cover of the map, you know, this is not an unfolded map, obviously, this is just the cover of the map right there. Here, here you have just this beautiful picture. And in a lot of ways, that reminds me of what Paul is doing here in this passage. That we've got a beautiful picture of Jesus. The New Testament just gives us stories and beautiful pictures of Jesus. But this map is going to get unfolded in a minute. But just for a minute, as we, as we think about just this beautiful picture of Jesus, you know, for, for skeptics today to dismiss Jesus by just saying, ah, that, that, that couldn't have happened. Um, well, then you've got to face some historical questions about Jesus. And here Jesus is, is being not only extolled, but defended. But, but here's, here's some questions that you've got to face today. Why did Christianity emerge so rapidly and with such power? No other band of messianic followers in that era ever could conclude that their leader was raised from the dead. None of them did. So why did this group do it? And even more importantly, these were Jews following Jesus. These were Jews listening to the sermons of Jesus. There was no other group of people in the known world that were more repulsed by the idea of a man claiming to be God than the Jews. Anathema, nails on a chalkboard, reason to pick up a stone, as they did again and again. And yet, these are the people that conclude, you know what? As much as this goes against what I ever imagined, the dude was God. Like, how did that happen? So what changed their worldview virtually overnight? How'd that happen? How do you account for hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection who lived on for decades after the resurrection and publicly maintained their testimony, eventually giving their very lives for that belief that ran so countercultural, not only to their own thinking, but to everyone around them? How do you account for all of that? And also, this is very interesting. The thing that's very interesting is, if you think of um, the history of people that, in a sense, make great claims uh, to be leaders of movements, right? And you think of it as two kind of circles in a Venn diagram. The, the, first, the, the first group would be people who make the very claim. So Jesus is, is, is one of very few people in history who founded a great world religion... And who, like, like, let's say, Plato or Aristotle or Socrates, set the course of human thought and of life for centuries to come. There's only a small handful of those people. And he's in that tiny group. But on the other hand, 
There have also been, not a big group, but a number of other people over the years who have either implicitly or explicitly claimed to be divine beings. That they, in fact, were God. Most of them ended up leading weird, minor, little sects of no account that only fizzled quite quickly. But what is unique about Jesus, and historians have to grapple with it, and skeptics have to grapple with this historical fact, is that he is the only one that overlaps between those two Venn diagrams. He's the only one who changed world thought for centuries and centuries, and the only one who also claimed to be divine. That's a big deal. That's something you got to grapple with. And praise God that that is something that you have grappled with and have come to find a very satisfactory conclusion that what is said about him really is true. Praise God. Only Jesus combines claims of divinity with the most beautiful life of humanity. And he himself is the main argument for why we should believe in Christianity. So if, if this is like just the cover of the subway map, and you just marvel at the elegant beauty and artistry, as you would at the life of Jesus, but under the hood, and when you really get to know all the details about Jesus, at first, it could be kind of overwhelming. And, and this is what happened to me when I opened up that subway map there in London and said, holy smokes. Let me just go ask for some help right now. But it is huge. It, it, Jesus is huge. And, and this whole section of scripture here, this is huge. This is, this is remarkable what we, what we have about Jesus. He is now regarded as some of these amazing things that are said about him. He is the very image of the invisible God. The, the word is icon. The, the best idea that we could have today is he's a photograph. He is an exact representation of God. Yeah, we, 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 he, he is an invisible God, God is. But in order for us to know him, he decided to let us see him in Jesus Christ. But now here's the interesting part and why this passage of scripture is so explosively controversial. And it, and it truly is. Is because of this phrase, he is the firstborn over all creation. Going back to the, the latter 200s of AD, this phrase began to be very contentious. The firstborn over all creation. Why? Because a man named Arius was one of the main teachers in the early church. And he began to promote the idea that Jesus was not, in fact, co-eternal and co-God. That he was not, in, in essence, God, and yet individual in person, but rather, he was a created being by the Father God. This is the, the, the very idea that Christadelphians follow today, that Jehovah's Witnesses follow today. Mormons have a, a, a pretty strong slant on, on this idea as well. Uh, a lot of different cults today hold to the idea that Jesus was not, in fact, co-eternal with the Father, but was a created being. Why, why is this a big deal? Because this affects our reconciliation. The, the, the degree to which we can be reconciled by just some agent or creation of God 
versus being reconciled by God himself and imbued with all the powers of God versus being just in some agent or in some created being versus being in God, in Christ, is a very, very big deal. And it affects our appreciation and our resting in grace and grace alone for our status and our salvation. But Arius, uh, in, in promoting his idea, did so with marketing uh, acuity. He had great skills. And one of the things that he did is he came up with a jingle. Maybe one of the earliest jingles to promote an idea. And this was his jingle. Is that? Let me, let me go ahead and uh, jump, jump over to this. His jingle was, There was a time when the sun was not. And it was set to some sort of a tune. Now he had an opponent who was trying to hold on to the orthodoxy or the right teaching of scripture on this. And this guy's name was Athanasius. And Athanasius retorted with his own jingle. Not very creative, but also set to a nice tune apparently. And rather than saying there was a time when the sun was not, Athanasius in 320 began to promote the idea there was not a time when the sun was not. And it was kind of like, nah, 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 nah. There was a time when the sun was not. There was not a time when the sun was not. We got spirit? Yes, we do. No, you don't. It's only a, a, an active agent of the Lord. It's, it's not really a third person of the Trinity. Right? So, so, so all of this would go on uh, back and forth. Uh, and, and, and it was this argument. And, and Arius be, be, is kind of the father of what's called Arianism. Uh, this, this view that Jesus is not truly God. Now, in the Jehovah's Witness religion, it manifests itself to the point where they actually equate Jesus with being Michael, the archangel. And maybe you didn't know that. But that is, when you ask, so who is Jesus? And they don't really kind of tell you this because it becomes a bit embarrassing, I think, at this point. But for them, and you know, when, when you do press them, they're like, okay, let me, let me go ahead and argue for another five hours on this point. Uh, he's Michael the archangel, and here's why, and here's why, and here's why. But, but they, as Arius also had issue, the rest of this verse mitigates strongly against the idea that Jesus is anything other than co-eternal, above creation, not a, 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 an object of creation, but creator himself. And in fact, there was a big council that was called in 325 AD, and it was called the Council of Nicaea. 300 bishops from all over the empire, the Roman Empire, came together to settle this issue once and for all. And there's Arius and there's Athanasius squaring off and debating one with another. Uh, and there was one other person that you might recognize who was at that um, council as well. His name was St. Nicholas. And St. Nicholas didn't really say anything at this time, but... Oh, anyway, the slides were just getting good. Here it comes. Come on, baby. All right. Somebody say a little prayer for this. All right. There was a time when the sun was not. There was not a time when the sun was not. And then, of course, St. Nicholas. And St. Nicholas, in the midst of the Council of Nicaea, in this hallowed hall, sacred assembly, all gathered deep in study of the word of God, finally, according to legend anyway, gets so frustrated that he stands up in the middle of the council, walks across the large wood floor, and not, doesn't say anything, but punches Arius right in the face. 
This is St. Nicholas. He sees you when you're sleeping. He can touch his ring to his thumb. He knows if you've been blaspheming the divinity of Jesus. So if you're an Aryan who can't take a punch, you better run. I want to draw our attention again, though, the difficulty that someone would have to hold to this position. Because if you want to try to say that, that Jesus was, in fact, part of creation rather than the creator himself, then you've got to mess with this section of scripture. And mess with it, the Jehovah Witnesses do. Through their publishing arm, the Watchtower, they publish the New World Translation of the Bible. Why did they do it? Chiefly for this passage. This very passage that we're reading. This is what they add. Instead of saying, because by means of him all things were created, what do they have to say? All other things were created. All other things have been created through him and for him. Also, he is also before all other things. And by means of him, all other things were made to exist. The Jehovah's Witness Bible also was published as an interlinear or a diglot, a, a, a Greek translation right next to their English translation. And in the, English, in the Greek translation, it was also an interlinear. So they threw their scriptures underneath it. In their interlinear, you can see there that in the Greek, they don't actually have the word for other anywhere. It just does not exist. Even they have to admit that the word other is not there. This is their own published Bible. But there is no word other, despite the fact that they have to include it again and again and again. You do not have a good doctrinal stance if you have to monkey with the Bible itself. And if you have to add those words, then you are probably on rather shaky ground and you care more about your heretical founder's views than you do about really allowing the Holy Spirit to work through the scriptures to lead you into all truth. So enough, enough said on that kind of incredibleness about Jesus because it's not just here that we have the clarity that Jesus is co-eternal with God. That He is one in essence, but of course unique three in person. God is. He has unique identities, but nonetheless one in essence. Difficult, yes, but reinforced again and again. But the question is, for, for what we have here in this passage, did Jesus claim to be God or not? What we have in the New Testament data, does Jesus say he's God or does he not? How do the evangelists who write about him, who are repulsed by the idea of a, of a man being God, how do they write about him? How do they view him? Let's, let's just look at a couple of the passages on that. So, for example, you know, he is the image of, of God. He is the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things were created. Because Jesus himself said in John eight fifty eight, before Abraham was born, I am. I am Yahweh, in other words. Now, well, what did he really mean by that? Maybe all he was trying to say was that uh, he, he is in alignment with, with God himself. No. How do you know what he meant by that? Look at what those who listened to him knew that he was saying by that. What's the next thing that happens? The Jews got the message by seeing in the fact that they began to pick up stones right then to stone him because he claimed to be equal with God. Um, another reason that firstborn doesn't mean that Jesus was the first created being is the broader context of, of all of the New Testament itself. By the way, the, the word firstborn, prototokos, uh, is the word that doesn't just mean that you were created first. It means that you have all the privileges of firstborn. 
It, 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 it means a privileged position. As much as it means that you were the one born first in a family. That, you know, let me have a double portion of your spirit is what Elisha says to Elijah. In other words, he wants to be regarded as firstborn with the privileges of firstborn. Jesus is regarded that way as the one with all of the privileges and, and regarded rather highly. It is a, a word of acclamation as Paul is not only laying out beautiful doctrinal truth, he's also jumping into mad flow worship. And this is a beautiful word on his part which is only defined by the rest of what he says throughout this passage of, of Christ. That not only that, but he is now the very icon, the very image of God. But let me get to that one in a minute. Uh, another reason, uh, again, that, that it doesn't just mean a created person, in John 5.18, it says, For this reason they tried to all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself Equal with God. That's pretty clear. They had misunderstood Jesus' claim. You know, as a good Jew, he would have then replied, you know, after they said, hey, you're making yourself equal with God, uh, saying you're Lord of the Sabbath. He, he would have replied, hey, God forbid. I'd never claim to be equal with God. Who would, who would do that if they're a good Jew? But instead, he goes on for many, many more verses there in, in, James, in John chapter 5. And then he says in John 5, let's, as, as a sampler of this in verse 22, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Now, if He's not God, then He's whack. But He is God. And praise God. But there are too many that want to take the edge off of His divinity. Why? Because if he is divine, all bets are off. And the whole idea of subjectivity, all roads leading to God, moral absolutes, they are all cemented in him. On another occasion in John 10, the Jews intended to stone Jesus, and, and this is why, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. The New Testament is not vague on this issue. Again, he didn't deny their charge, but rather, he defended his claim in John 10. And on another occasion, when the paralytic was lowered through the ceiling, the Pharisees, as, as he forgave his sins, said, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? All right, if Jamie sins against me, then I can, I can uh, forgive Jamie. But if Jamie sins against Jeff, I can't forgive Jamie. Right? Only Jeff can do that. He was praying that he will, based on some things. Uh, right? But that's not my position. Who am I? Who am I to... Yes, Jamie, in this dispute, you are, you are forgiven. No, that, that, that's ridiculous. But that's exactly what Jesus does. And that's why everybody in that room were grumbling. He just made himself out to be God. And at the climax of the gospel, in John's uh, gospel, uh, when, when, when Thomas having wrestled through doubt and pain, recognizes in John 20, verse 28, my Lord and my God. And Jesus did not rebuke him for blasphemy, but rather commended his faith. And then commends our faith for having believed the very same thing, the very same things about him that are unfolded here in such intricacy in this hymn, that he is, in fact, 
a vision, a, a very image, a very picture of God. If you've ever wanted to know, God, why are you invisible? Why can we not see you? Why do you not reveal yourself? He did. Beautifully. In the life of Jesus. Given to us in, in vivid, vivid detail. We are a blessed. We are a people that have been given so much. To be able to know the intricacies of our God so well in the person of Jesus Christ. And I think at the end of the day, God knows that, yeah, maybe we would appreciate more logical propositions about him. But what's really going to capture our hearts is to see him in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what captivated Paul. And that's, that's why he is in this kind of state of ecstasy as he begins to continue to, to talk about Christ. Again, in the intricacy of this, of this section of scripture, as, as you see here, I mean, there's so much that's, that's being laid out. Not only did he create all things, but everything in, in this first section is he is preeminent over all creation. This word preeminent is, is found here. It's a very strong word. And it is this idea of not only being sovereign, but, but also being honored and worshipped and being head and in charge. He is preeminent over all of creation as far wide as it goes, even Creation in heaven, not just on earth. That's your Jesus. Your like homeboy Jesus is now exalted at the, at the throne. And he is not only having created all things, but he is holding all things together. You know, many, many uh, kind of atheistic, secular thinking scientists today are, are, are quite uh, enamored with the advances of science not realizing that if it were not for a Christian worldview, we would have never have had these advances in science. Why do I say that? Sir Francis Bacon, a devout Christian, came up with the scientific method. And, and this is in the 16th century. And why did he come up with the scientific method? The method by which you set out a hypothesis, you change variables, you test the hypothesis, you see whether it holds true or not. Why? He was able to do it because he held to a Christian worldview that the world was created by a brilliant being and therefore is ordered. And that there should be consistent rules governing all of creation. And it was a Christian worldview that allows us to have had every single advance that, that comes from that initial idea that this can all be deciphered and discerned and unveiled. And in the end, as we do so, as, especially as advances come today, what we're left with is this idea of, oh my goodness, it's more complex than we ever imagined, but at the same time, so breathtakingly elegant all creation is than we ever imagined. Why? Because it's not just held together haphazardly, it's held together by Jesus. Even now. You know, he's not only uh, preeminent over all created things in this kind of huge deal that is listed in this, this section here. He's also preeminent over all recreated things. Namely, the church. You. He is preeminent over all of you who have been recreated. And the beauty of it all is, is that, in, in fact, he is, he is so much the church that when Paul, who wrote this, first encountered him on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, and he hears from him, what is it that Jesus says to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul was persecuting you, the church. 
He was persecuting recreated Christians who formed the body of Christ. But Jesus is so intricately loving and involved, even with you, with us, that to persecute, as Paul did, the church, is to persecute him. As we flourish, he flourishes. As we grow stale, he mourns. As we're attacked, he is ready to bring the defense. He is preeminent, involved with every one of us. And, and this didn't come about with no small thing. One after another, if we had each of you stand up and give testimony over the preeminence of Jesus, over all this recreation, we would be astounded. In, in times when we've done it in small scale, we are shouting hallelujah again and again. When they did it at the conference this past Saturday night, it was amazing to hear person after person, including Jeff and Kelly, to be able to share how God had changed their lives. And in his preeminence, it says, you were once alienated from God, enemies in your minds, because of your evil behavior. That's a pretty bleak picture of who we were before he became preeminent in our lives. That we were excluded, hostile, outsiders that had nothing to do with God. The, the, the idea of being alienated is you were non-participants in anything godly. Yeah, but I went to church. And, yeah, you know what? You were kind of bouncing around the fringes, but you were not in Christ. There's a massive difference when that really does occur. All things change. Scales fall from your eyes. Repentance refreshes your soul. The very purposes of your life are completely rearranged. The passions that well from within are a brand new chapter that is consistent in your life. Everything changes. And instead of having, having enmity in our minds, having opposition in our minds, not because, oh, I, I hate that Jesus guy. No, because I want to do what, what I want to do. And I'm going to do what I want to do. That's how I was opposed to Jesus in my mind and through my behavior. Well, but I was a pretty good guy. You know, I took out the trash on trash day. I always mowed my lawn. I, you know, paid my taxes. I voted. See, uh, I'm a pretty good guy. Now, all of that at the end of the day is, is really just self-serving. I was still Lord. I was still on the throne. All of those things only fed into my image of of being the good guy had nothing to do with Jesus in any way whatsoever. That's the before. And then the after is you've been now reconciled by Christ's physical body through death. For what? To be holy in his sight without blemish and free from any accusation. Huh, that's who you are right now. And he is preeminent and he is riding guard over it all right now for you. You have now been made holy. You are without blemish. And you are free from accusation. And think of the accusations that have even come your way this week. You are actually free from them. The only reason that you entertain them is because you in some way or another have decided to put your faith in self and performance rather than in Christ. And the minute that you do that, you end up in a very perilous position. So much so that he then ends this section by saying... This is your case. No accusation if, and here's a big if here, if you continue in your faith. In other words, if you continue in your trust in Christ rather than self. Established and firm, not moved by the hope 
that is in the gospel of good news. Now, as crazy as this map is, the one nice thing about it in this, in this uh, hymn is that there's a place on the map where there's a circle that lands and it says, you are here. And what is the you are here? This is what he brings us to at the end. Through his death, in all of this grandeur, he's holding together all of the cosmos and heaven and earth. He created and recreated all things. In the midst of all of this, how do I kind of even fathom all that is Jesus? Well, I love what he does here. He gets a little red dot that says, you are here. He died for you. He saw you in the midst of all of that. All of that. You are so special. His thoughts for you outnumber the grains of sand of all the seashores. He, in his infinite capacity to love you, interrupted your life and through his death took you from being alienated and hostile and enemies and evil to now being holy, without blemish, and cannot be accused of anything. You are here. And all that he asks of you now is trust in that. Have faith in that rather than try to have faith in yourself. Trust in that. And the more that you have trust in that and the more that you appreciate that, it will wash over your very soul so that moment after moment, as that becomes the reality of your life, as that becomes every step that you take, the wonder that you are, the gratitude that swells up, the enormity of the significance that is your life, then begins to animate your every breath, your every heartbeat. And as a result, all the more, we honor Jesus as we walk in a way worthy of the gospel. Amen. Thanks.